0: Welcome to This is Modern Rock, the podcast that takes a month by month look at the modern rock charts. I'm Will Westjakow, and this is September 1992. Joining me today is my very favorite guest, Orly. Welcome back. Oh, thank you. <laughs> thank
1: you very much. Um,
0: you know, I like to try to get you in every like three or four episodes, but I feel like it's been ages since you've been on the show. You're so busy, yeah. so booked. Why, wow, yeah? Oh, that's my fault. I yeah. thought you. I thought you were booked. Uh, no, you. You're
1: so booked. Oh, the podcast success keeps growing. The numbers keep
0: growing. I so. guess. I guess so. Well, I know one thing you've been up to because I was also up to it. We saw the Peps.
1: We saw the Peps. It was a blasty blast. The Strokes opened up. And most excitingly, Eddie Vedder came out on stage with the Strokes. I cried. I screamed. <laughs> then I cried. And it was uh, everything it should be.
0: Yeah. Well, good timing, because I think we're going to be talking a little more about Ed later I know. this episode.
1: hmm Anything else going on? Let's see. Starting with the context of modern rock, I will also be seeing Nine Inch Nails
0: next week oh my goodness i'm very
1: excited about that as
0: well wow you're all about the bands from 1992 why not yeah i haven't heard the last seven nine inch nails albums but hey (laughs) 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 play the early
1: hits just play hits you know if it's a hit and it's a good one i'll be able to pick it up
0: you know that's how i feel yeah you know what i've been thinking about trying something a little different with the show
1: Right now, you're switching it up. Yeah, After just all, right now, like... right now.
0: Yep. So I always like to try to get the first song in before like the eight minute mark. Oh, but okay. I thought, you know what? Why don't we throw some music in even earlier? Oh, okay. You know, so people don't have to wait around, hear people talk. Sure, the people, sure. The, the listeners, they want to hear some music. That's what they came for. So they didn't
1: come for for our.
0: They also came for that. Incredible insight. But they want they want the music <laughs> as well. So I thought what I would do is early in the show, like right after I introduced the guest, play a clip from a charting song from the month we're listening to. Okay. And then not say anything about it. It'll be something a little more obscure, not one of the big hits okay. from the month. We'll just make it like a, do you know what this song is for the listener?
1: Is it like going to be an extension of your... Intro song, so it'll be like you'll introduce the podcast, then the
0: song will come on. Well, for this episode, it's going to be we're talking about it right now, and then I'm going to play the song.
1: So okay, great. But actually, I think you should like play your theme song, mm-hmm. and this is 1992. And before you introduce the guests, after you say whatever, like this is September 1992, and then you just play the song.
0: Okay. And then at the end of the episode, we'll say what it was. Sure. Sound good? Yeah, I like it. Okay. And. For most cases, I'm going to play the lowest charting song to reach its peak position. Oh, okay, so much? so
1: you'll be like, and this song hit 14, which is the highest that ever went on the charts.
0: Yes, in this case, I'm going to play a song that peaked at number 28 okay. in September of 1992. Here it is. To play, but when I hear man's heart, you know, I've got to say, when you see my little choked regarding yourself, then the red wine blue's going to catch up in you. It's all right, pass a bite. It's all right, to waste your time. It's all right, what else mine? So it's all right. Well, it's all right, what she's what to get. It's all right, and I'm going to do the rest. It's all right, what I'm doing my best. So it's all right. Orly, if you know what it is, don't say what it was. Oh, I don't. It's going to remain a mystery until the end of the show. Okay. I don't think we need to say anything else about that song, right? It's just going to be the mystery song. Is that what we should call this segment? The mystery mystery song. Can you think of a better title? Mm, Probably. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) What if we mix it around and call it the song of mystery? (laughs) A little more formal.
1: Well, what makes it a mystery?
0: It's a mystery because you and most of the listeners don't know what it is. And I'm not telling you until the end of the episode. How do you know that most of the listeners don't know?
1: It's that obscure
0: number 28 on the charts. So what? That was like two radio so stations playing that song twice. Yeah. All right. Well, should we leave the Song of Mystery for now? Song of Mystery. And dive sure. into the non-mysterious songs for the month? Mm-hmm. All right. Well, we have one song that hit number 1 in September of 1992, and it is Peter Gabriel. Uh-huh. Peter Gabriel is an English singer songwriter and activist, and he was a founding member and the original lead singer of Genesis. Genesis. Back when they were a prog rock band. Yep. So he sang lead on the first six Genesis albums and also played the occasional flute. The flute. And yeah, he's a real flautist.
1: It's just funny when you play certain instruments. Like flautist, sounds like you're a professional farter. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: pianist just and makes pianist, people giggle,
1: right? It sounds like you're a professional dong twiddler. Well, you know,
0: <laughs> we actually have a a musician who's coming up later this episode who plays the saxophone, and I was going to ask you, is that pronounced saxophonist or saxophonist?
1: Stop it. <laughs> saxophonist. I don't know. I mean... It's saxophonist, but the fact that you want to make it sound like some... But if we were,
0: if we were British, would it be saxophonist?
1: If you were Greek, it would be. Saxophonies. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Underrated Greek philosopher. <laughs> I don't know if this is true. This might be just one of those stories that are told. But supposedly, when Peter Gabriel left genesis Uh to go solo the band auditioned 400 singers 400 singers could this be true
1: i hope so i wish they filmed it and then we can watch a montage (laughs) of all 400 of them
0: (laughs) just highlights come on. right and then of course we know what happens (gasps) their drummer stepped in and said like no i'm just gonna do it i know the drum the drummer phil collins couldn't they have just skipped over the 400? Maybe maybe the rest of the band just really didn't want Phil to do it. And They're like,
1: kept... no, we have to post this publicly <laughs> yeah. first. Wouldn't be fair to the musical community.
0: Uh, was this guy all right, Phil? No. <laughs> <laughs> Phil has V Surely this way. He's got the veto Vito. stamp. Yep. <laughs> anyway, after leaving Genesis, Peter Gabriel took a little time off from recording to more or less learn how to be a musician. He took some hmm. music and piano lessons. And then he started making these really arty solo albums. He's a super arty dude. Like in concert, it's weird costumes, goofy makeup, stage props, acrobatics, just super bizarro. Yeah. And his music, while having pop elements, can also be like very weird and experimental. But yeah, he looks like a stockbroker. Who's wearing a thong underneath his suit? <laughs> of course, I, obviously he's wearing the thong, and it's yeah, yeah. He just doesn't look like the arty dude. That's right. not how he dresses. Right. But then, of course, he's making these like incredibly groundbreaking music videos, winning awards on MTV like for everything he releases. Right. I think Sledgehammer was the most played video of all time on MTV. Really? I think so. At least at some point. At it was. some point. Yeah. So Peter Gabriel released, I think, four albums that were all called Peter Gabriel. Eventually, started releasing them with other titles. And in 1992, he released his sixth solo album called *Us*. This was his follow-up to the very successful album *So*. Those are really boring. Boring titles. Yeah. Yeah. Us,
1: so, when? <laughs> I don't know.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> No, it should be. Hold on. Law. Should have been Uh law. Anyway, we're going to hear the first single from the album. The single's called Digging in the Dirt. It was inspired by Peter Gabriel's research into murderers and why humans kill.
1: Oh, you can't see my eyes rolling, but they're so far in the back of my
0: head right now. Well, he was uh, heavily involved in psychotherapy at the time, and he was... Nope, still eye rolling. Okay. Still, no, no, I'm not knocking psychotherapy necessarily. Mm-hmm. I know what this is. Yeah. It's not uncommon to hear about musicians who get briefly obsessed with Charles Manson or something like that. Like, yeah. Yeah. Or the preoccupation with murderers and serial yes. killers and things like that. Cool. Yeah. That's how I feel. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Here it is Digging in the Dirt, number one on the modern rock chart.
1: liked it musically quite a bit. Mm-hmm. I think it's a really good song, and I think it's super catchy. Mm-hmm. Like, I haven't heard that song in years, and I'm like, oh yeah, I can sing along,
0: and it's a bop. And you know what's funny about that is every time someone says Digging in the Dirt, or I, th- I see the title or whatever, I can never remember how the song goes. Because the Digging in the Dirt part is the least interesting part. It's the least memorable part. part yeah, 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 at least yeah. memorable. Um, but then, yeah, I hear it, I'm like, oh yeah, of course, this song, and it is, it's good. I feel like it's got a, a touch of robo-funk in there. Yes, you catch some of that? it does. Yeah, but it's kind of a slow build. Yeah, I like it. You know, like you it. got a little instrumental at the beginning and then you got this verse and then you yeah. got what kind of seems like a chorus. But it's the pre-chorus. It's a pre-chorus. Yeah. And then it's it even better with the chorus. Yeah, And then they have like a post-chorus even. I know, in. I like it.
1: I like all those parts too. I find it quite enjoyable, well-written. Yeah. Except the lyrics, they're bad.
0: Do you think that they are bad lyrics or just subject-wise? You just don't like what he's singing about?
1: Oh, both. It's the, the rhymey part, like, keep your hands on the wheel. This is for real. Okay. like I'm just like, it's... Mm-hmm. Yeah,
0: you're already, dude, go beyond the rhymes. Uh, yeah, like that. kind
1: of. You know what I mean? Or like very surface. Mm-hmm. Also, and I don't know what subject matter is exactly, but... I would have not been paying so close attention to the lyrics had you not told me the history of why he was interested, like what he was doing digging in the dirt. And then you're listening to it and you're like, Oh, this time it's gone too far. Now so, get in the car, I gotta bury a body in the woods or something. And I'm so like
0: somehow knowing what he was thinking about when writing it makes you appreciate the lyrics less. Well I shouldn't have told the listeners. I no, should have said this no right? no one knows what the song no is about. One knows.
1: No, just for me, it seems like role playing or romanticizing killing is weird. Mm, Okay. But I know we do that in like everything we ever watch or see or whatever. There's just like so much killing. Yeah. So I don't know why it bothers me more here. Probably just because I'm thinking focused,
0: you know, on it. Sure. Well, here's the fun fact in 1998. Peter Gabriel sang a Randy Newman written song for Babe 2, Pig in the City, (laughs) called That'll Do. That'll Do. And it was nominated for an Academy Award. Whoa. That'll do, Peter Gabriel. That'll do. (laughs) That'll do. So we're going to jump down to number five. And we're going to hear from a band you may have heard of called Pearl Jam. I may have heard of them in my
1: dreams <laughs>
0: <laughs> for those of you listening at home we may have mentioned this before but Orly does have a paper mache Eddie Vedder doll Yes, that she made herself
1: in middle school and the best part now about this doll is that our nanny thought that we called it Daddy
0: Vedder <laughs> <laughs> so now, he, now he's Daddy no, now Vedder. he's
1: Daddy Vedder
0: <laughs> nice Ah, yeah. so good. Well, Pearl Jam has charted twice on the Modern Rock charts prior to this point. They charted with Alive and with Even Flow. Right, but low. But low. Yeah. Alive hit number 18, Even Flow hit number 21. If you would have asked me, I would have said that they were both number one on the charts for 19 years. <laughs> but no. Okay. Okay. And this is before my time.
1: I didn't get into Pearl Jam until 1993. Mm-hmm. Not 92. I was I was just a kid with a spiral perm trying to fit in. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, then you weren't around for their third single, Jeremy, which hit number five. Slow build, but they're getting there. Yeah, for sure. You know, despite the low chart performance of these singles, obviously this band becomes insanely popular, and their first album, Ten, goes on to sell 13 million copies in the U.S. alone and helps make Pearl Jam one of the biggest rock bands of the 90s.
1: When I was 13, so it was the next year, all the songs that came out the year before were on the MTV Music Award list. So Peter Gabriel's Digging in the Dirt was up against Pearl Jam's Jeremy in like every category. Mm. They were constantly, and then just
0: Jeremy just kept winning. Mm Mm-hmm. And actually brings me to my next point, because I wanted to talk about the music video. Okay. There were actually two music videos shot for Jeremy. Oh, I've only seen one. Yeah, the first one, kind of a low-budget affair. Uh-huh. I think the label initially did not want to release Jeremy as a single. But I think the album kept performing steadily, yes. better and better. And they saw where this was going. They decided- and they had just
1: played... Like uh, Lollapalooza, things were getting good.
0: Yep, so they decided to release Jeremy, and they said, you know, we got to do a bigger, fancier video. So I think uh, they hired Mark Pellington, mm-hmm. gave him like $400,000 budget, and they shot a very memorable video. They did. Which, as you said, won a lot of MTV Video Awards. They did. But also affected the band In an interesting way, because this was the last music video they did. In years. For years. 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 And it wasn't until Do the Evolution. And they were barely in that. Which was an animated one, yeah.
1: And I remember reading some interviews saying that they did not enjoy doing music videos. That was not the greatest experience for them. They don't like acting. They're like, I didn't get into
0: music to be an actor. Mm -hmm. So... This song was inspired lyrically by an actual event where a young student took a gun to his school and shot and killed himself in front of his classroom. That's not entirely obvious just from listening to the song. No. Clearly, the lyrics are about a troubled young man. But you can't tell there's a shooting involved. Not at all. Yeah. Now, with the music video, there's definitely a boy. He's got a gun. Oh, no. Yeah, it's made clear. But initially in the music video he stuck the gun in his mouth mm. and he shoots himself uh-huh. and kills himself. MTV had a problem with Absolutely. this. Absolutely. For, you know, obvious reasons, yes. we can't show this guy sticking a gun in his mouth. So that part was cut out of the music video, but the effect is that a lot of people were really confused by the end of the video oh. and it wasn't clear to many viewers that Jeremy was killing himself. They thought he had actually shot up his classroom.
1: Oh, yes, because they do show people like, (sighs) covered in blood. With blood splattered Mm on them. I think I was confused, too. Yeah. I knew he killed himself, but did he take anyone with him is like the question that lingered.
0: Yeah. Let's go ahead and listen to the song first, and then we can talk a little more about it. Here is Pearl Jam's Jeremy. It's a little tough to talk about this one because obviously we've heard it 800,000 times. times. I think it's a fantastic song. This song rules. It's really good. But because we've heard it so many times, I think it's easy to overlook that this song is actually a little unusual.
1: Oh, it's very unusual. No, yeah, for sure.
0: Well, I could, I could apply this to a lot of the songs on Pearl Jam's first album, actually, is the way that Eddie Vedder phrases and constructs the <laughs> lyrics. It's... Almost like he's making stuff up on the spot and letting the melody go where he pleases. It doesn't need to rhyme most of the time. I
1: love it. It's weird imagery and...
0: Yeah. In a lot of pop songs, the way the melody is constructed often like repeats and follows certain patterns. And this seems... Like, it escapes from that in a large way. Like, Mm -hmm. the patterns are less clear, and it's like, when you have the second verse, it's not following the same notes Uh -uh. as the first verse. It's so true. Lyrically, also a bit unusual.
1: He's telling a story in a way where he's still being poetic, Mm -hmm. and leaving things for you to put together, but also
0: painting a nice picture. He does, and I'm still trying to put some of it together, but... I was going to say the picture of mashing his teeth and biting the recess lady's breast. The first time I heard that, I was like, Mu-wu. I know. What did he just say? Like, <laughs> it's bizarre imagery, but Absolutely. Like, you clearly get a sense of who this kid is.
1: Yes. Oh, I just love it. I love I love Eddie Vedder's lyrics. Yes. I mean, really, it is a really weird song. Mm-hmm. Jeff Amet wrote the music. So it was also written by a bassist. He gets to start the song with that riff, and then in the background, the bass is, like, dancing all around. Mm -hmm. And it's just got a totally different vibe than a lot of the other songs on the album, too.
0: And I should mention, like, this whole album was pretty much written musically before Eddie Vedder came in. And I think that shows... In the way his lyrics fit over the songs in that unusual way, it's that's less true of subsequent albums yes. for Pearl Jam. It's something that like is very much of Ten, where he's got lyrics, the music's already written, and then he's like mapping those lyrics uh-huh. over I that music. It, that was he there. He did a
1: really good job. He did. And the band that he was in before was a little funky, mm-hmm. so I can- think Bad radio. I was going to say bad religion. Yeah, Yeah. bad radio.
0: (laughs) Back when Eddie Vedder was the lead singer of bad religion.
1: (laughs) So I think maybe he's taking some of that delivery sensibility to this early stuff because that's where he just come from. But I think it works really well.
0: Yeah, I can still listen to Jeremy in black, whereas it's a little harder to listen to Alive and Even Flow for me because I've heard them so much on the radio.
1: Oh, I got my fill of Jeremy on MTV. Mm. So while they weren't being played on the radio, Jeremy was slapping me in the face all day on TV.
0: (laughs) That was actually the the third verse that was deleted from the song. Slap you in the (laughs) face. So I do want to talk about the single briefly. Okay. Because the single featured a B-side that shows up on the modern rock charts a few years later. So good. Uh, The song is Yellow Lead Better. And it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. And this is the second time we've seen this where a B-side ends up charting a few years after the fact. The first one was the Peps Uh (laughs) with Soul to Squeeze. Yeah, but that's because it made it onto a movie soundtrack. Mm -hmm. So where did this one? I don't know. We'll find out when we get there in 1994. Moving on. Okay. Our next band we're going to talk about is the Utah Saints. All right. The Utah Saints are an English duo, Jez Willis and Tim Garbutt. Jez and Garbutt? Maybe that's not even how you pronounce it, but... Yeah. Garbutt? Yeah, say Garbutt. Okay, it's Jez Willis and Tim Garbutt. They're a stadium house band, and they're known for sampling popular songs and kind of turning those samples into something new, but, you know, house music-y. okay. Uh, we're gonna be hearing a song called "Something Good." That's pretty fun to name your song, Matt. You're like, "What is it?" It's something good. Yeah, don't worry about it. But also, you gotta live up to it. You know what I mean? That's true. Just put chocolate in it. (laughs) (laughs) That'd be awesome, like the CD single or whatever. It's got a piece of chocolate. If you don't like the music, at least least you got a tasty treat.
1: in your song like imagine you're just
0: eating chocolate right now (laughs) would that do it for you or would that just make you upset
1: if you don't like the song pretend it's chocolate
0: (laughs) (laughs) all right so something good is taken from the utah saints debut ep also called something good which was released in 1992 and this song, as I think you'll notice, features a prominent sample of Kate Bush's Cloudbusting from 1985. All right. Let's give it a listen. This reached number seven in September of 1992. Did something good happen?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I don't really get how songs like that sneak in the modern rock charts.
0: There's a strong interest in dance music at this point in time.
1: Yeah, and your mystery song didn't sound very rockin' either, honestly.
0: Also, you know, K. Bush is noticeable in there as a sample. And yeah. K. Bush is definitely a modern rock artist. Yes. I think since the beginning of the charts dancey house musicy type It songs, gets in there they're, yeah they're, they're sprinkled throughout there's always yeah. some sort of audience for a song like this
1: yeah like yeah i guess if i was in the club dancing to this it'd be fun but i like songs with lyrics this was just like an instrumental dance song and like i had that problem with um daft punk mm-hmm. with their like earlier stuff
0: right there's like not lyrics to it yeah, so or it'll ab- be like one line that said over and over again. This is not for kind of me. Thing. It's tough for me to really evaluate because they could be doing something totally new and exciting. Right. And I wouldn't have a clue. Yeah, I couldn't like tell. Going, looking back at it from now. Right.
1: I mean, I enjoyed some of the keyboard sounds and beats that I was hearing. Mm-hmm. You know, there wasn't anything that, like some of the things you hear, you're literally like, yikes, I hate that. Like, <laughs> no. And there wasn't anything like that going on. I was like, "Oh, this." I kind of like the tone on this, and they somehow managed to make it feel a little less cold and indifferent. Maybe yeah. well, than you know, some there was a, some like
0: stadium crowd cheers in there oh. somewhere. Did you hear some of that? You give it a little bit of like an exciting live feel. Okay. Yeah, I don't know if it's this is right of me, but I always feel a little irritated when a song that samples another song charts higher, higher than the than, original. Yeah. And I'm not saying that these guys aren't talented and Fit. that it doesn't take you know creativity and work to make this kind of music. But somehow, yeah, I just can't help but being a little irked
1: no, it feels like you, like, not just rode on the coattails, it's almost like you skinned something and, like, took it, mm-hmm. turned it into something else, and then, like, everyone's praising you for that instead.
0: I mean, there's clearly way more egregious examples than this, than this song. There's, sure. there's songs, you know, let's say, Missing You by Puff Daddy, uh-huh. that, like, it's sampling the police. Oh, and 100%. It's, yeah, it's yes, police, yes. like, heavily... It's the same song. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, here's what I want to say about this song, about Something Good. So in 2008, the band released a new version of Something Good, and it became the most played song of the year on BBC One. People still wanted Something Good. It sold 400,000 copies in the UK. They added the chocolate. They might have, but I actually want to play you a short clip of it because uh, there's something I want to mention about um, these two versions. We're not going to listen to the whole thing. The 2008 version is very different than the 1992 version.
1: I mean, it's completely downgraded. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. So you're favoring the 92.
1: 100. Yeah. Oh, just, 2008. Yes. Okay. For I, sure. I think I agree with you. Yes. That's funny, though. I'm like, meh about the other one. It's fine. What did I say? I said, fun, but why?
0: And then you gave me that other one And I'm like not fun No All right, we got one more band to talk about Another PJ Yay This one is PJ Harvey Still good Polygene Jean Harvey English singer slash musician Guitarist but also a a Saxophonist Saxophonist I've never seen her
1: playing the saxophones Well apparently
0: she can do it So is Trent Reznor Does he? That's what oh he play- He can, was in
1: band, like he you, was a band kid. Can
0: you imagine a Trent Reznor, PJ Harvey, saxophone band, saxophone I duo? I
1: want it so bad.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so PJ Harvey formed in 1991, and I heard that at their first gig, mm-hmm. they were so bad they cleared the hall. It was like 50 people, and this one woman offered them money to stop playing. She oh, was like, I... "You guys are not good. <laughs> Don't you know this?" I will give you money.
1: He's five quid. Shut the fuck up.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if they shut up or not, but they didn't shut up permanently. They kept going. In 1992, P.J. Harvey released their first album called Dry. The first single was a song called Dress. It did not chart on the modern rock charts, but it is a stunner. I love that song. It's fantastic. The second single did chart. That's what we're going to hear today. The song is called Sheila Nagig. Uh-huh. Do you know what a Sheila Nagig is? I
1: don't. I also didn't even know that's what it was called for years because I never saw it in writing. Mm. I'd heard people say it, so I was not exactly sure what it was, even though she says it in the song. Yeah. So many times. So I don't even know what I was thinking she was saying. Somebody's
0: name, Sheila something or other.
1: Yeah, I thought it was Sheena.
0: Sheena, the punk rocker.
1: Yeah, thought she was
0: making another comeback oh. <laughs> in this song. But uh, so Sheila Nagig is a statue. It's a type of statue okay. generally found in the Ireland Englandish region. Okay, but not strictly confined there. It looks like a naked person okay. with an exaggerated vulva, ah. and in many cases. They feature arms that are, like, reaching down and, like, stretching the vulva open. I need to take a look at this. Yeah. Yeah, and most of them seem pretty pleased to, like, show off this vulva. (laughs) (laughs) That's the exact sound I was picturing (laughs) in my head. Yeah. (laughs) Most of the ones I've seen, they look like little androgynous trolls. There's no breasts on most of them. They don't have any features that specifically say, you know, this is... A woman. So they're little girls. No, they're not girls. They just look like little goblins or something. What are their heads like? Little round goblin heads. Yikes. And it's not totally clear what these were for, but they showed up on castles and sculptures and walls and things. Uh It's thought that they might have been a ward against evil spirits, but nobody knows for sure. So with those statues in mind you exhibitionist yeah here well exactly (laughs) here is pj harvey's sheila nagig which reached number nine i love this song on the modern rock chart A good song that's a really
1: good song the first time i heard that song i was like what and then i was one of those songs that i waited around to hear again so i could record it off the radio and then after i did i just listened to it over and over and over and over and over again until i could write down all the lyrics and know them the best i could although sheila and a gig made no sense to me because i had no idea what that was so now you know now i know
0: does it make you like the song more yes yeah that's good <laughs> that's a weird song too huh Honestly, Mm -hmm. when I first heard the song, I thought there was something wrong with the volume on my. uh... Oh, me
1: too. It's so quiet. Yeah, it
0: starts out very quiet for quite a while. Uh huh. It's almost jarring. Like, it makes you want to crank it up. Uh huh. And then uh, when the volume gets louder in the song. Yeah, you're you're like, like, whoa. "Whoa." Yeah. (laughs) Jeez. I think we should also talk about PJ Harvey in general and, like, just why this was so exciting at the time. P.G. Harvey's not just the singer in this band and the songwriter, but she's also the guitarist mm-hmm. for the band. And, you know, this is a time when more women are starting to appear on the modern rock charts. Mm-hmm. But a lot of them tend to fit into something closer to like the coffee shop or folk singer alternative sort of mold right? or the piano playing right. singer songwriter sort of mold. We have not had too many women who rock. Well, we had an L7. Who are playing their guitar and, yeah. and who rock. Yeah, we have, we have had L7, yeah. it's true. You know, Hole released their first album in 91, but... Yeah, but uh, no one listened to it. There's, there's that, and I, <laughs> I don't know how competent of a guitarist Courtney Love was at the time. As competent as I was when I was 15. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't want to go through and, like, you know, the Go-Go's existed. Like, no, no, you no, know no, I mean? no,
1: but like, yeah, it was like... It was a real rock-in song. I mean, yeah, so did the Pixies existed. She seems cool. Breeders existed.
0: Yes. But she's also, you know, not just trying to be one of the dudes. She's not copying.
1: No, that song's super original. She's got her own style and her own thing and just really cool.
0: Mm -hmm. She's still doing her thing. She cranks out the albums. She's supposedly releasing a new album in 2023.
1: What am I saying? I'm sad I never got to see her, you know, so maybe one day.
0: Yeah. Before we wrap things up, we should talk about the song of mystery. The mystery song. Which one's better? Are we going back to mystery song?
1: It might be. Okay. I would like a pun. Okay. Let's work on a pun for Mm -hmm.
0: it. Maybe we can get some listener submissions. Okay. What should we call this bit? Yeah. I'm open to suggestions. But... Here it is. Okay. The song we played at the beginning of the episode, the mystery song, was by a band called The 25th of May. The song's called It's All Right.
1: I don't know what's special about that day. Do I need to look it up now? Yes. Okay. Yeah,
0: I'm <laughs> not going to look it up. I mean, that's the whole thing about the mystery song. I'm not telling you anything about the band, just who they are. Oh, okay. Yeah, if you want to know more, look them up.
1: If you want to know more Here's what I wrote in my band. notes, though. I, w-
0: I wrote, a white British public enemy? I don't know if that's accurate or not because I didn't do any more research beyond that. Okay. So there it is. All right. Well, thanks everyone for listening. Uh, If you have not done so in the past, it would be amazing if you could go on whatever platform you listen to this podcast on and give a nice review. You know, hit the old five stars button. If you want to get in contact with me, offer some suggestions for uh, what to call the mystery song or, you know, anything in general, or just tell me some stories about some of these bands. I'd love to hear it. You can reach me at thisismodernrock at gmail.com. Orly, thank you so much for joining me once again. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Thank you all for listening. This was September 1992. We'll catch you all next time. Bye. Bye.